Welcome to the Good News with Angie Austin. Now, with the good news, here's Angie. Hey there, friend. Angie Austin here with the good news. We are talking about the book Parallel Faith, Walking Alongside Others on Their Journey to Christ. Dave Bowden is the author, and he is joining us from not-so-sunny England, as he puts it. Hey, Dave. Hey, great to be with you. Great to be with you. All right, so if someone said, you know, what is Parallel Faith about? Kind of give us a a brief synopsis of, of the book, what it's about. Yeah, in simple terms, it's about helping Christians, um, every Christian, confidently learn how to make disciples. And often this is something which we think maybe is the job of the pastor or somebody who's really good on a platform or somebody who's able to take part in a program. But Parallel Faith really focuses on this idea of discipleship being walking alongside other people on their journey towards Christ. And, you know, I think, Dave, a lot of times, like, when you accept Christ or you join a church, they're just like, you know, great, you know, keep coming back. But, you know, I I was in a church where I felt that they wanted to walk alongside us and really help educate us in terms of the faith. And there's a quote at the beginning of the info I have on you that says, do we point people in the vague direction of Jesus and hope that they can find him on their own? Or are we willing to walk with them side by side on the journey? So, I think we think of that as like the pastor's job or a Christian leader's job. But I remember when I worked at a the station in uh, in news and I would be in the makeup room and I was very outspoken about being a Christian, which wasn't always like my bosses weren't always fans of that. I wasn't necessarily outspoken on the air, but all of my colleagues knew. And then when something really trying or horrible happened in their lives, at, you know, four o'clock in the morning, I, I'd be in the makeup room and someone would find me in there and want to talk to me. Yep. So it was like I had church in the makeup room, you know? And so how do we walk alongside someone in terms of helping them find uh, Jesus and know more about the good news? Well, what I love about the story you just told is that you recognize that actually every believer has to take responsibility for this great commission that Jesus has sent us out to go and do, go and make disciples. And in many ways, you, you know, you, you've nailed it. It starts where you are and it starts where other people are. And I think for too long, Christians have lived inside their religious bubble, haven't they? Where they've not wanted to kind of step outside of their comfort zone. But we start making disciples by walking alongside people where they're at and beginning to answer questions from their starting point, not ours. Beginning to meet that that person, love that person and develop a relationship with that person in a way authentic, in a way that's vulnerable and in a way that represents the reality of who we are and the reality of who Jesus is. You know, so often um, I think that people just, they feel like they've got this great good news inside them, but they've no idea what to do with it or who to share it with. Um, So that's why I love the story you just told there, because you were willing to actually take a step out and share what's inside you. And that's what walking with people is all about. Now, you talk also about um, loving others, and you... um kind of explain that loving others means being near them. So what do you mean by that? Yeah. So I think that, you know, proximity equals potency. So the power is really in being close to people and near people. It's very difficult to reach people and make a difference at arm's length. And um, Jesus modeled for us this amazing thing where he incarnationally came from heaven to earth. And he actually came amongst the people. So I think proximity, being near to people, it changes our perspective, doesn't it? You know, like often we have stereotypes about people. So we think about people from a different culture, oh, yes. generation, 
of faith, you know, and we just make prejudgments about those people. Yes, like you're English, so I assume that you're funny. Absolutely, and I'm not very. Actually, sometimes I am, you know, but like 12 people think I'm hilarious. But it's like when you meet somebody, when, you know, with, there probably are stereotypes about the English, stereotypes about Americans. When you meet someone, that proximity changes your perspective. Yes. And I think, you know, when it comes to, say, Christianity, for example, when somebody actually gets to know a Christian, more often than not, they start to deal with some of the hang-ups about Christianity. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, and when I'm saying this, I, I don't mean that we should just befriend people as a tactic. Uh, we, you know, nobody likes a hidden agenda, do they? Like this idea of near enough, like being in relationship with people, so that we can achieve our goal and outcome. That's not what we're talking about at all. Uh, you know, I, I don't like to talk about friendship evangelism, but I do like to talk about friendship. No, when you um, talk about conversations that really matter, I have found myself in conversations where I felt really bold and I could really explain something to someone. And I remember sitting on the set once and there was um, a guy filling in an anchor position. I think he was a sports guy. I can't remember, but I remember that he wasn't really into faith. And he said, well, you're 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 a Christian, like you're into, you know, like the God stuff and all that, um, you know, kind of like I got the impression he was saying like well how did that start and I just like went for it like I don't know why because I knew that he wasn't an easily like um, convinced person he was kind of cynical and I was explaining to him a couple of situations like my brother was murdered for instance and then there was another situation where I was just trying to explain to him that there was that probably three occasions in my life when really horrible things happened. And I said, I have to tell you that I had that, they call it in the Bible, I told him, the peace that surpasses all understanding. And that like a feeling came over me that was so strong that I could not deny that there, that, you know, it it was God. And that, that when that feeling came over me, it was like me signing my signature on the line saying, uh, okay, I believe for sure. You know, like I that feeling you just yeah. gave me that peace that surpasses all understanding in an extremely difficult situation. Like for my my girlfriend's son was killed. He was a Marine. He lost three of his limbs and they could not save him on the operating room table. And when she got the news, she got that feeling where she said she had to write a book because she had to let people know that God was real because of the feeling she had. And that's what I tried to explain to him. And I could tell that like he heard it. You know, I don't know, but I think it was like one step in him hearing from someone uh, that believed in the Lord that maybe that was just the first step of 20. But I I don't know why I was so bold on the set in the commercial break to tell him something so deep. But um, he heard me for sure. Whether, you know, I I didn't convince him, but he definitely heard that it was real for me. And what you've done there is perfectly demonstrate this idea of like walking parallel with people, like coming alongside them and sharing something of your faith without the expectation that that person's going to sign on the dotted line that day. Because you know if you try to push it with him, there's no way that he would have pushed back. But actually, you planted a seed. And one of the things that I talk about so much in the book is this idea that people need to take little steps towards Jesus before they can take big steps with him. And when we think about evangelism and discipleship, much more as a journey and a spectrum, it starts to break up this idea of like evangelism in a box. And we have people in our church that go and do evangelism once a week. And we have discipleship on a Tuesday night. Actually, if every believer would uh, recognize that we're all on a journey, 
And my job is to help that person take one more step towards Jesus wherever they're at. So I, I suspect that that day, that, that, that man you helped move him from being not interested to spiritually curious. Right. That was that's, that's what I thought, too. That's such a great way to say it, Dave. You know, and I yeah. think about when you say that, and I, I, I want to talk more to you, but you're making me, like, remember things. And this is the biggest yeah. God story. I, I, it's interesting. You're, you're illustrating the book so well. <laughs> well, this is the biggest God story that I can in my entire life. There was my dad was a professor. He was estranged from our family for 35 years. When I was a kid, I was a straight A student, and he changed his phone number so that the us four kids we could not contact him. And my uncle yeah. explained that it was guilt. So here, my dad is a professor in another town. He's remarried. He never has other kids, and he does not speak to us. He was an alcoholic who was abusive to my mom and brought pot and drugs into our home. And two of my brothers, their lives were destroyed by it. One became homeless. The other was murdered. Um, and then there was my brother who went to the West Point Military Academy, graduated the top 1% of his class. I worked seven days a week, lived in crummy places like foster homes and with friends and with like a horrible aunt. And, you know, then I I had had a pretty good career in TV, news and radio. Okay, so that's the split. So out of nowhere, my dad contacts me about mm, 10, 12 years ago and I knew I'd forgiven him because when I heard him say I go by Angie and when he said Angela I knew that it was my dad that's my name and um and so I felt immediately that I'd forgiven him so then he got to meet my kids Dave he did not my kids didn't even know I had a father my kids were like maybe eight six and four or something to that effect and they my son had said to me once "Do, do you have a dad because I would never bring up the negative things then I didn't speak about him because there was no relationship. So anyway, we got like eight great years with my dad. He didn't drink anymore. He's brilliant. He was, you know, one of the highest degree belts in judo. He did Tai Chi every day. My stepmom is great. Like once he quit, uh, you know, uh, drinking, he was just fascinating. He wrote poetry. He was a professor, you know, all kinds of great things he'd done. And he was very apologetic. Well, he had this friend by the name of Keith, who was a student that he taught for many, many, many years. Keith is like a Bible thumper times 10. Like he is into Jesus. So here he is like in his 20s and he knows my dad and he totally admires my father. And they become like my dad's his mentor. So then he learns judo. He opens up a dojo. He has like a wooden sculpture of my dad outside. My dad is like his idol, but my dad is not interested in Christianity, period. They are friends for, I'd say, I don't maybe 40 years. And so the person that brought my dad to Colorado to meet my children was Keith. He drove cross country with my dad so he could reconcile with me and go to the University of Colorado where they were going to give him some big award for being an athlete and academic scholar or whatever. So he went on the field during a football game. So he came out for that, but then it also brought, you know, he was trying to reconcile with me. So anyway, Keith brings him. Over that 40 years, Keith had talked to my dad about Jesus on numerous occasions. And my dad would be like, oh, read this book and read that book. And you need to learn about all faiths. And he was just kind of a pessimist and take your Christianity and shove it where the sun doesn't shine. You know, kind of. But yeah. Keith kept working on him. Keith wrote this huge letter to me when my dad died, because my stepmom also was like, leave him alone. Stop with the Jesus, Keith. On my dad's deathbed. 
Keith said, do you want to accept Jesus with me? And would you like to recite the sinner's prayer with me? And he said, your dad said as clear as day as he was dying, he said, yes. And he wrote it in all caps with exclamation points. He told me that on my dad's deathbed, my dad asked to do the sinner's prayer and that he asked to accept Christ. And 40 years into that journey where he tried to convince my dad to become a Christian, on his deathbed, I believe 100% that my dad did. Yeah. Uh, and that is, I mean, first of all, that's an incredible story. Um, and that, if you think about it, again, if your dad had just been expected to go to a church meeting and listen to one talk and put his hand up at the end of that talk and sign on the dotted line, I, I don't think he would have done it. Uh, I think it took patience. It took prayer. It took that element of you, you know, as a daughter loving him. There's probably numerous things that if we were to decode your dad's story to the point where he gave his life right at the last minute, um, that really helps us understand that we need to be thinking more about a process-orientated evangelism and not just a platform one. It's interesting you say that because he did know I was a Christian, and a couple of times when I tried to reconcile over that 35-year period, I think I went out twice uh, to, to visit him, and I remember being in the back of his truck, he's driving to the airport, and he lectured me on like, being open to other religions and faiths. And I said, look, I came out of a really horrible childhood. Like, can you just let me have this? Because this gives me peace. Like, can you just leave me alone about this? And he knew it was important to me. All right, so wait, hold on. We're almost out of time. Can you stick around for like another five minutes? Um, Because I want you to talk a little more about the book after the break. Is that okay? Yeah, of course. Excellent. All right. When we come back, uh, Dave Bowden, Parallel Faith, walking alongside others on their journey to Christ. We'll be right back. Evergreen is tuned to the mighty 670 KLT Denver. Arc Thrift needs your small furniture and electronics donations now. You can donate that end table or folding chair you've been meaning to find a new home for. Smaller sized furniture that can fit in your trunk and home goods like blenders and air fryers are items that Arc badly needs right now. They make it easy by unloading your car and your donations help people with intellectual and developmental disabilities. The primary mission of Arc Thrift. ARC has high demand for small electronics like speakers, soundbars, Bluetooth speakers, and turntables. And once you donate, you can shop in the stores for your own treasured finds. Each ARC thrift location has over 5,000 new items every day. So there is always something new and exciting. Every ARC thrift store keeps their shelves fresh with new merchandise, so each new purchase will be special to you. ARC's donation centers are open from 9 a.m. to 8 p.m. Monday through Saturday. Sunday donation hours are available as well. To find the nearest ARC Thrift Donation Center, go to arcthrift.com slash donations. Hey friend, Angie Austin here, continuing with the good news, and this is a good news interview. Dave Bowden, his book, Parallel Faith, Walking Alongside Others on Their Journey to Christ. We were just talking about my dad's 40-year friend, a student that then became one of his best friends, and they were uh, friends of 40 years. He brought my father out to visit when he reconciled with me and met my kids after probably a 35-year estrangement. So we drove him you know, from Minnesota to, uh, to Colorado to have that reunion. And I told you, uh, Dave, that he accepted Christ on his 
deathbed, but you said it was a process. And he did know that I was a Christian because he had a real salty, he had some salty language. And my stepmom yeah. said before he left, now she's from Iran. So she goes, Bryce, you know, Angela is a Christian. So don't do all the swearing. Don't, don't do all the cursing, Bryce. So you leave Angela alone with the swearing. So I know they were both very aware I was a Christian. Definitely. <laughs> Sounds like they were. It, it, it reminds me of this kind of illustration of, like, I think so often as Christians, we expect people like your dad and others to kind of make their way into a church building. And, and I always describe that a bit like you've got a fish in a river and then you've got a Christian in the middle of the desert with a fishing rod. And he expects the fish to ju- jump out of the river, crawl along the desert and jump onto the fishing rod so that that Christian can say, I've caught one. And it's never going to happen, is it? Uh, probably not. <laughs> and I think the reality is, is that we've got to go to where people are. Yes. And we've got to be willing to, you know, step outside of our comfort zone and meet people where they are and actually be willing to walk with them on this journey because nobody's spiritual journey is as clean cut as we want it to be. Right. You know, and, and it's the same for you. It's the same for me. And actually, you know, there's a really fun theological thing you can do think about the disciples you know peter james john mary any of them think about each one of them they all had such a unique journey towards to jesus didn't they like when did the disciples become christians great theological question to discuss um because actually all of them even after they've been with jesus for several years had different questions they had different moments they had denials they had points where they had struggles on their journey that was absolutely not just a linear line you know i um in terms of parallel faith um and your book so again if you're just joining us dave bowden author of parallel faith um we're talking about you know walking alongside people um loving people as they come to christ and not just saying oh you know oh great you're a christian now keep coming back to church um you talk about a slow burner approach to Jesus. I believe at times I may have been a slow burner like you're talking about. And so, yeah. but what's interesting to me is that my kid, I took my kids to church all the time when they were little and they accepted Christ. And we used to go to an all black church, which the kids called the yelling church. We were the only white family and it yeah. was amazing. But the services were really long and Pastor Moreland, he would get into it and he'd burst into song at the pulpit and he would yell and they'd do a big prayer circle. They were very loving and welcoming and the kids really thrived in that environment. And my husband who grew up Catholic was like, oh my gosh, he's like, you guys are great. Like, it's so fun here. Like, Catholic Church was not like this at all. There was no yelling. Because yeah. <laughs> Pastor Moran, he preached so loudly. But then during COVID, our church closed, and we kind of fell away. But you know what I'm seeing right now, Dave? My kids are bringing me back. They're going to Young Life. They're going to Morning Bible Study. They're going to Federation of Christian Athletes. And they're asking me to find another church. And they're asking me to go to youth group on Sundays. So they are dragging me back where I had brought them in the beginning. Yeah, yeah, that's really interesting. And actually, it's representative of a generation who, when we talk about the idea of like moving from being not interested to spiritually curious, there are a generation of young people out there who are spiritually curious. But one of the problems is right now, they're not finding answers through what they see as the religious institution. So the religious, the institution kind of almost wants people to come in prepackaged, ready to go, sorted and they're answering questions that young people are not asking so i work with about twelve thousand young people every day through my job 
and most of them, to most of them, Jesus is a swear word. Oh, you know, yes. I, I describe the spiritual climate in the UK almost akin to like fresh snow where there's no footprints on it. Because when you're talking about God, when you're talking about church, they don't have any frame of reference for it. So we've had to go right back to the beginning and saying, okay, what are young people interested in? Well, they want to know who they are. They're interested in their identity. They want to know what they're going to do. They're interested in purpose. They want to know where do I fit? They're interested in belonging. And actually, when we're walking alongside people, when we can start to show people that Jesus answers the longing of the human heart, he shows us our identity, he gives us a purpose, and he helps us belong, that's when we can start to break down the barriers uh, between the world around us and the church that we're in. Now, one more thing I want to ask you, because I want to have you come back, because I want to talk about uh, the Grace Foundation and working with young people. So I want to get um, your website and the Grace Foundation website, and then I want to have you come back and talk about working with young people, having three teens. I'm very curious about that. Absolutely. No problem. So give us your websites. So it's... um... So the, for myself, it's daveboden.substack.com. That's where you can read my blog. Uh, and I write about discipleship and evangelism. Um, and you can also obviously get a copy of the book, Parallel Faith, from daveboden.uk forward slash Parallel Faith as well. And give us your Substack one again. It's daveboden.substack.com. All right, Dave, stick around because I'm going to change gears here. I'm going to have you back, but we're going to change gears and talk about veterans and PTSD. Well, research shows that veterans experiencing post-traumatic stress disorder or PTSD, as many of us know it, can be helped by pairing them with specially trained service dogs. Well, joining us today are veterinarian Dr. Ruth Lobos and Burina and Nicole Lanahan, direct, executive director of Got Your Sick Support Dogs. And they're here to share info about a special program that Purina Dog Chow Uh, is uh, helping with service dog salute that's supporting our military veterans welcome dr lobos and nicole lanahan thank you thank you so much all right i have to tell you guys how into this particular topic i am i had a vet in the studio and we had um, an organization from colorado i'm based in denver um in uh, the studio for an interview and he the vet the veteran was talking about um his depression his ptsd and the life-changing moment that occurred because of his dog and i will never forget it i don't remember the dog's name i don't remember his name but i remember the look on his face he said he was trying Mm -hmm. to end his life and he had lifted a gun to his head and his service dog came over put his paw right on his wrist and shoved it down and he said it was a life-changing moment and it just like was so eye-opening to him, like, wait, I can't do this. I have my service dog. Like, he knows what I'm doing. Like, I have to live. And his life completely mm-hmm. changed. Yep. They are amazing, amazing <laughs> and life-changing. And it's kind of been my mission to just scream up from the mountaintops. Well, uh, well, that's where I am. So you're screaming right now. So let's just talk about that, <laughs> that for that need for PTSD service dogs and uh, the obvious benefits um, they provide, because I'm a firm believer in this. Yes. So the reality is pretty awful. Roughly three and a half million veterans right now are suffering from PTSD. And as we know, this can they could try to self-soothe with drugs and alcohol. They can't leave their houses. They can't work. Their relationships suffer. But recent research has shown that, like you said earlier, that the service dogs are reducing the severity of this, which is life-changing, turns it all around so that they, they're 
relationships are improving with friends and family. They are able to go back to work. They're less absent. They can reduce the amount of medications that they're on. They are able to uh, find joy in things like hobbies that they had once lost passion in and just rejoin society, sleep better. The the benefits are, are almost too many to, to list. He also explained to me how the dog would um, kind of like, and I don't know the military term for it, but kind of like do almost recon where he'd go ahead and like sniff things and make sure like the area was safe, which made the veteran feel safer to go out in the world because he felt his dog like had his back. Yes, absolutely. Some service dogs have been trained to go into the house before the recipient and turn all the lights on before they even enter. And, And like you said, some are trained to do searches and blocking. In public. It's fascinating. Well, Dr. Lobos, obviously you have a love for animals, and um, it's so cool that uh, Purina Dog Chow is involved. So let's talk about your involved, uh, your involvement in helping uh, the vets. Yeah, so, you know, the, the, the big problem with only about 1% of our veterans being able to actually be paired with their service dog um, is multifactorial. It certainly there is the time that it takes with one to two years to really train these dogs for all of the medical tasks that they need to do. Mm -hmm. But also from a financial investment side, it takes about $25,000 to train one of these service dogs. Mm -hmm. And Dog Chow is on a mission to change that. Um, We've donated over a million dollars to organizations like Nicole's Got Your Sick Support Dogs as well as others um, and to help to offset the cost of training and care for these service dogs. But we've also brought to life the great work that they do through what we call the, the Visible Impact Award. So you can go to dogchow.com slash service, read about one of our five finalists, and then vote for your favorite. And for every vote that is cast, Purina Dog Chow will donate $5 to our partner, the Association of Service Dog Providers for Military Veterans. So now through October 13th. Oh, that's really cool. Well, speaking of that training, um, let's talk about what exactly these PTSD service dogs do for training in that one to two years. Nicole, do you want to handle that? Absolutely. Every organization is different, but ours, for example, we train our service dogs for the individual receiving that dog. So ours are very specifically trained. Uh, You can't see him right now, but there is a standard poodle right next to me. His name is Will, and he is... He's specifically been trained to alert to the symptoms of anxiety as they start before an outburst occurs. And this can be things like noticing uh, a knee bobbing up and down or noticing hands, fingers picking or arm scratching. And then he's going to come and interrupt that behavior and let the, their person know that, hey, you're, you're starting to get upset. You need to do something about that. They, he's also been trained to wake his recipient up from night terrors. Now, some of our dogs are trained to do this up close by pawing and licking, and others are trained to, if, if the recipient is known to wake up violent, which can happen depending on the severity of the, the nightmares, th- these dogs have been tr- will, are trained to wake them up by using light switches instead so that they can do it safely. 
They're also able to bring like a cell phone in case of an emergency and remind their recipient when it's time to take their medication. So just so many different things. For example, one of our finalists, Huey, he can sense the chemical changes that occur in his veteran Ramon when he's about to have a dizzy spell so that he can get to a safe place and sit down. Um, Or when a migraine is about to come on for him so he knows to take his medication to help to prevent that. So it's just amazing work that these dogs do. That's fascinating. Uh, And as as a mom of three teenagers, I can definitely um, uh, appreciate someone relieving your anxiety. And I have to say, I have five pets, so I kind of unofficially use my pets to, you know, relieve my anxiety too in a in a less important way but you know obviously I do understand the benefit of the the love these animals give as well hey is there a special day well, I'm to gonna give you go ahead oh I was just going to give you a really quick tip then anytime that you're home and this goes for you or any of your listeners pet your dog for 30 seconds it takes 30 seconds but then you get a dopamine boost in your brain when I when I give this talk to teenagers at school I tell them and they get a kick out of it you can literally get high on dogs Oh, my, when my son had a bad um, year during COVID, he would, when I'd pick him up, he'd, uh, I'd bring Butch, one of our Pomeranians, and he's like, Mom, Butch, oh. is, Butch is my best friend. And they both get so excited. Oh. It, like, it helped him through the year. You know, I, I so believe in, believe in this. All right, I want to make sure, again, people, um, we're almost out of time, that people know where to go to learn more um, you know, about getting involved and getting that $5 donation per vote. Yep. So to learn more, you can go to dogchild.com slash service for the information and to vote. Thank you both so much. Have a great day. Thanks for all you're doing for others. Thank you. Thank you for listening to The Good News with Angie Austin on AM 670 KLTT.